the Marvel Movie Minute, a daily podcast in which we dig in deep to analyze the films of the Marvel Cinematic Universe one minute at a time. I'm Andy Nelson from thenextreel.com. And I'm Pete Wright, also from The Next Reel. We are looking at John Favreau's 2008 film Iron Man. And back with us today, we have the chaplain of the Movies by Minutes community, Father David Mowry. Welcome back. Thanks for having me back. I, I sincerely hope that I am the least of your problems right now. <laughs> Look at that. <laughs> Bringing it around. Uh, we are looking at Iron Man Minute 89 on today's show. The minute starts with Raza's veiny paralysis and ends with Pepper asking Tony what he's going to do with the information she brings back. Starting us off in Raza's camp, we are finally, uh, I, I guess I spoiled the surprise yesterday, but I, I just couldn't hold out. But uh, Oh, it's only minutes. Yeah, oh, thank it's goodness. 15 minutes. Oh. 15 minutes. Not 15 years, not 15 months. Well, Obadiah Stane, he's not a monster. He's not going to leave someone paralyzed for a long time. This is Obadiah Stane we're talking about. Oh, well, I, for one, am relieved. <laughs> I, uh, I, not to uh, dig into the Christ in the Cape segment mm. too early, but I do feel like there is there is some merit to a conversation around cleansing through violence. Oh boy! Uh. Yeah. <laughs> did, did you just crack your knuckles on that one? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, so certainly we've we've got a really grisly scene outside the uh, outside the tent here. Um, yeah, I think. This scene in particular, uh, well, if we want to just get into Christ in the Cape right now, since you brought it up, uh, I, I think this this minute in particular kind of shows the uh, shows the progress of sin. So, if we look at the the account of the the first sin in the book of Genesis, uh, the tree is in the middle of the garden. The man and woman are forbidden from eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They are tempted by the serpent. They reach out and they take the fruit and uh, disobey that command of God. And then don't take responsibility for it. They blame each other. They even blame God. You know, the man says, that woman who you put here with me, by the way, she gave me of the fruit of the tree to eat. So we have this, we can see in that story a progress of sin. It, it starts with pride. They think themselves better than the commandments of God. They think themselves of higher station, worthy of something that they have been denied. And we can see that pride, obviously, in Stain. He's suffered in the shadow of Tony Stark. And we've, we saw that very cleverly depicted in the award ceremony at the beginning of the movie where uh, the one of the magazine covers has Tony front and center taking charge and Stain is kind of shrinking in the background. And so we have this hint of a wounded pride in Stain. Uh, and then pride turns to envy. You know, when you think yourself better, you start to wonder, why is it that I can't have everything that I deserve because I'm just so much better? Stain has been denied this technological and economic empire in Stark Industries. Obviously, they're doing very well for themselves if they have this much material that they're able to siphon off of the regular shipments that no one's really noticing this extra stuff going to the terrorists. And so Stain wants to have what Tony has. He wants to have control of the company. Company. He wants to have this little empire unto himself. And so when you're caught in envy, then that leads you to scapegoating, to blaming someone for all of your problems. Well, the reason that we can't have what we want is because of X, Y, Z. So for the man and the woman in the garden, it's God who becomes the scapegoat. God is standing in our way and not getting us what we deserve. Stain makes 
Tony, the scapegoat, he has to go. He has to be the one to die, to be killed, sacrificed in order for the good of Obadiah Stain to come to the fore. And then concupiscence, uh, then concupiscence results from that. Now, concupiscence is a, a technical theological term that refers to the influence of sin. In this case, it, it refers to a certain attitude, a way of looking at the world. You're looking at it through concupiscent desire, uh, seeing everything as a threat to number one, that everyone's out to get me. It kind of becomes this mild paranoia. And so it is with Stain. Stain feels frustrated later on in the movie when his engineers can't figure out how the suit works. He lashes out at them and uh, has to take matters into his own hands. He has he not done grabbing and grasping from Tony, yet he takes even Tony's life uh, in his hands once again in order to take that heart out from him. And the thing that supports this whole progress of sin is violence. You know, the prideful and the envious are able to get away with what they do because they're able to exert their power through violence onto other people. Uh, it's uh, it's like the, the, the Miletan dialogue between the, the, the people of Miletes and Athens uh, when the Athenians are attacking Miletus. They say, well, why are you doing this? And the Athenians say, the strong do what they will and the weak suffer what they must. That's the logic of a world dominated by the progress of sin. Uh, and it's precisely this kind of pattern we see become so destructive, not only in Stain, but but also in Tony. Tony will begin to spiral in this way. Now, in quasi-heroic ways, but his own desire to have what he can't possess will end up not working out so well for the world as a whole. And uh, the the Christian answer to the progress of sin is to undo it at the roots, where Jesus comes in to take on that pattern, to take on the violence on himself, to uh, accept the consequences of the scapegoating, of the envy, of the pride of humanity, undoing it through humility, through forgiveness, through um, generosity, and uh, through a, a giving away of one's life rather than taking for oneself. Uh, and it's that kind of self-sacrificial spirit that animates a lot of heroes. Without a doubt, they're willing to lay their lives on the line. Tony himself will be willing to do that in a later story. But when that isn't present, you have someone like Stain, who he's all about himself and wants everything done according to his specifications. And God help you if you get in his way, because it's a messy end. Well, and that's actually an interesting uh, thing to to say and point out, and uh, I mean, I think what you're saying is right. The the nature of the envy that he has for for everything that Tony has, but I think a lot of that also, uh, the, you know, as it seems from the beginning of, or, or not the beginning of the film, but the beginning of uh, the way that he starts behaving after Tony comes back, yeah. right? I mean, yeah. I, I think he is envious because he obviously sets up this whole situation for Raza to kidnap Tony, but uh, you know he. I, he's kind of running the company, right? It's his company. He's obviously doing stuff under the table already, making a lot of money. All he's really doing at this point is just saying, you know what? I'm already doing it, but Tony is still taking all the glory. Yeah. I want that mm. too. And so I think that's, I mean, he. It's, it's almost like he's got some of the power now, but he wants all of the power. Right. And and that's what he's really pushing for as he uh, as he sets Tony up to get uh, to get killed. Yeah, because you, you look at his original plan. The original plan is just to kill Tony, get him out yeah. of the way. Oh, what a tragedy. Afghanistan, what are you going to do? The rough part of the world. And then he just gets Stark, lock, stock, and barrel in terms of the company. Now, it's not just the company. Now he wants the Iron Man technology. Now he wants the suit as well. 
And it's interesting because if you think about it, he already had pretty much control over the company and everything that was going on with it because Tony wasn't there. He wasn't responsible. He was a party boy. (laughs) Right. And Mm -hmm. if he had just, if he had not let his envy drive him and just take what he already had gotten, which was control of the company and, and all of these sorts of sales uh, that he was getting to make tons of money under the table with people like Raza and the 10 rings, he would have been fine. And and Tony would have been none the wiser, and the company would have just been trucking along, and Stain would have been just this notorious bad guy that nobody ever knew existed. Well, if ever there was an example of reaping what you sow, this is it, right? It's really interesting mm-hmm. because it totally comes back and bites him because of yeah. that that envy that he has. And he he just has to get Tony out of the way, even though he has no logical reason to do so. Right. I've never really thought about that before. It's really, it's like, why did he do that? That was dumb. Villains are stupid. Uh, They they prove it time and time again. Well, that's, I'm being glib, but part of it is um, falling into that habit of sin that you you fall into this way of looking at the world. Stain sees the world through that lens of pride and envy, and he's so deep into it and he has no mechanism for self-reflection, you know, no chance to go to his priest and say, hey, I'm having these thoughts lately. Can you help me out with this? He's he's locked in this world. And so he follows it according to its own twisted logic, which, yeah, in classic uh, kind of comic book storytelling, the villain creates the hero to oppose him. But what's also interesting about Iron Man is that Iron Man also creates his own villain. So it's this weird creating each other's creation kind of everyone's making decisions that end up making things worse cycle of creation cycle of escalation yeah right everything is bigger the the explosions have to be bigger to counter all of the the cleansing right the cleansing appetite that's something that also uh, really strikes uh, a chord with the way that tony continues to develop the suits right Mm. there's always going to be another one there's always something that the last one didn't do he's you know the mark one worked but he needs to do something else let's get the mark two you know what that's doing some really interesting things but it needs a few more tweaks let's make a mark three what if we made it a suitcase yeah, yeah right. right. Exactly. What if we, what if we have it where I can just put a button on, push a button on my chest? Andy, I I think that's a, a really astute point though, because it's something we've talked about before, and you've brought up a number of times is Tony's um, uh, history of alcoholism, and the, oh, yeah. you know, find a smoker or a recovering alcoholic that hasn't taken up Butterfingers as a replacement therapy, right? I mean, mm. like there's always a replacement for an adi- for an addict, and anyone who has struggled with addicts, anybody who has has uh, been a child of an al- of an addict, like this is a behavior that's very familiar, and Tony. Is is an addict at his heart. Yeah. He is an addict and his replacement is technology. Like building those suits, by the time we get to the mayhem of suits in, you know, three, <laughs> uh, the, we we understand where his alcohol problem got him, right? He's, he's <laughs> right. like, now he, he's a suit guy. That's what he does. A suit guy, yeah. Yeah, I mean, he is. He's full on addicted to suits. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, well, yeah. addicted to the technology and the fear that comes from, you know, that underlies why he builds those suits, why Ultron happens. Right. Because he's he's terrified and he's an addict and this is how he exercises his skills. That's an element that I I would love to have seen explored a little bit more in some of those later films is that mm-hmm. nature of that addiction. They shied away from his alcoholism yeah. in the movies, which... I get I kind of understand, but 
at the same time that that's such an iconic part of his character development in the comics and it provides exactly what you're pointing out, Pete, this really interesting character line where, okay, he takes those same tendencies and focuses them in a creative question mark way in, in managing the suits. Yeah, that's generous. Very generous question mark. I, I'm in the generosity business. Yeah. <laughs> that's what I do. That's what, you know. <laughs> He's trying. Bless his heart. Bless his heart. This is the final appearance of Raza. But what I think is really interesting about the way that they leave it is um, it, he's only paralyzed for 15 minutes. Uh, Obadiah says, trust me, it's not the worst of your problems and walks out the door, kills all of his men. And that's uh, that's where we leave it. It's really interesting that Raza as a character has never been brought back because they kind of set him up to be somebody that could potentially be brought back. I was so disappointed that they did not bring him back as the, you know whatever this universe's Mandarin was going to be. I thought for sure, ah, yep. he is not dead. He is still alive. He's he was uh, fingering that ring earlier on in the movie. I thought, ah, I I see what you're doing, movie. I'm picking up on the clues. Thank you for thinking that I am clever and intelligent. Yes, I see what you're doing. And then he doesn't show up. Ah, right, why? Right. Uh, such a, such a disappointment. <laughs> Yeah, and it's especially because in the script, we even have Obadiah. He removes the ring, he studies it, and then he exits. So they were continuing oh. that idea of of the stuff with the rings mm. and really setting us up. And I, I would love to have seen that. I Man, wouldn't that have been great to see him come back in Iron Man 3 as the Mandarin? What a surprise that would have been. Uh, or even, not even as the Mandarin, but as the power behind the Mandarin, as the guy who was actually pulling the strings for yes, that whole plot because yes. that, that would have been a really just nice full circle moment which is what we want in stories we want, to, we want things to come together and to end as they began and it makes us feel really psychologically satisfied as human beings yeah so we get a, a dumb scientist that who cares <laughs> it, it's a forehead slapping miss and I, I the, the my headcanon has filled it in that at some point right around Mandarin 3 someone uh, you know, maybe it was Kevin Feige had the forehead slapping moment of, oh, man, we should have brought Ferran to here back. That was so dumb. And at least they realized it. And they're driving down the road and they're feeling terrible and they pull over and they have a good cry. And then we can all move on together. We can exercise that demon. And we all agree this would have been the better movie. Oh, did someone say exercise? I've got my stole. I'm ready. Yeah, that's right. And no many patri, you feel you spiritually sent. <laughs> Uh, with the with the departure of Raza, I uh, did want to just confirm um, this is not actually Raza Longknife, uh, who is a character in the comics. Uh, Raza Longknife is a, a, a member of the Starjammers. The Starjammers are a group of renegade space pirates in the tradition of the old English English buccaneers. And uh, and uh, they all met in the slave pits of the Shi'ar Empire during the reign of Deken, the Mad, uh, when atrocities of the empire were many. So uh, uh, it, it, what's interesting is... And considering all along, I've thought that they were that Raza. Andy, I'm so glad you've cleared that up. <laughs> right. Uh, interesting. Hold on, I have some fan fiction I have to go write. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> <laughs> 
Raza was a uh, in the X Men line of stories, um, which uh, it's interesting that they just pulled the name only basically over. But it is a good name; I like it. But interestingly, Raza in the film gets burned on the side of his face from uh, from Iron Man's actions. The character Raza Longknife is actually part uh, cybernetic, I would imagine, and. It's actually the left side of his face that actually has is a big cybernetic implant, basically in the same place where Raza's injury is. So it's interesting that they kept that wow. theme through it, I guess, <laughs> to tie it all together. Now, I know I said I'm in the generosity <laughs> business, but I think it's kind of generous <laughs> to say that they had that in mind when they were designing the character for the movie. Mm, I think that's a bit of a stretch. <laughs> Generosity business. I think you've made me take that back. (laughs) Turns out we're out of generosity. Fresh out. Sorry. Nope. Fresh out. No more. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing to see here. Oh boy, I I loved I loved that description of Rosa Longknife, Andy. That is that is some (laughs) some grade A comic book material. Mm, So good. It it really is. It very Mm. much is. I, I posed a question yesterday. What is the range of the sonic uh, taser that Obadiah uses? Because uh, it works really well on on uh, on Raza, mm-hmm. but interestingly, I don't think it's. I, I, I don't know. I, I struggle trying to figure out exactly what happened outside. We come outside. We see that that Stain's men. They work really silently, and they have somehow managed to round up all of Raza's men. They're all on their knees with their hands uh, kind of up on the backs of their head. Um, So I don't think that they got paralyzed because of the position that they're in, but it was an awfully silent scuffle. So I'm a a little perplexed by by this. Because I count about 20 terrorists, and we can see nine uh, military contractors in this scene. So, I mean— Two to one against. That's not great as as uh, military tactics go. So I I like the idea though that perhaps the sonic paralysis doohickey did have some effect. Maybe you need to be that close to the target for it to affect um, someone for fifteen minutes to do the full body paralysis. Even if you're far away. I imagine that sound is not going to be pleasant. You're going to be disoriented or dizzy, perhaps. It was just enough for these guys to be taken off guard and then rounded up by uh, Stain's men. I wish there were some sort of a uh, uh, some sort of way we could confirm that. Like I'm going back and forth looking for the blue glow in the ears of all of the soldiers because wouldn't they have to have the little fancy earwigs? You would think just like Stain did. But stains are already turned off by the time he walks out of the tent, so we have no way to confirm that. he's taken them out. It emphasizes the ruthlessness of the people working for Stain, that Stain is not a man to be trifled with because the people he has working for him are ruthless and efficient and do not miss a single trick. Yeah, whatever it was that they did, it was uh, very stealthy and silent, and somehow they managed to take everybody down. Maybe it's darts. Who knows? I have no idea. But <laughs> Darts. <laughs> Old school. Uh, right. What I will say uh, that I find shocking, considering how, how technologically advanced and smart these guys seem to be, they actually are all circled around the group of terrorists that are all on the ground. <gasps> Yet when Obadiah walks out, we see all the flashing lights. I'm oh, like, no. are they shooting toward each other? What <laughs> oh, are these no. guys? 
Oh, I don't even think about that. That's so funny. Oh my gosh. Because oh, thinking, I was thinking of just because because you know, I was thinking of the classic villain joke. So Stain walks away. Okay, let's finish up here. Ratatatatata. I imagine Stain turning around. What? No, I didn't mean shoot them. I just we have to fit. We got a bunch of stuff. To, why are you shooting them? Well, I thought thought you said that we should finish up, but I meant to shoot them. I get. All right, fine. All right, that's done now. It's done. It's, done it's now, fine. Right. Let's let's just move on. But next time when I say finish them, I mean do their final paperwork. <laughs> Get them to uh, validate our parking. Right. <laughs> That's what we needed them to do. Oh, uh, but no, instead they just uh they shoot toward each other as they as they kill all the terrorists. Maybe that's what Stain meant by cleaning up everything, right? He was actually going to have them kill all the terrorists and each other. Like, maybe that was part of his plan. <laughs> He's only got one guy left, and that's the, the one who's driving in him the, now. Is the one who's driving his car, exactly. It's like, it's yeah. like the bank heist uh-huh. at the beginning of The Dark Knight. All the, so, all the robbers <laughs> bumping <laughs> each other off. This is it, yes. Uh, well, that's, that's pretty diabolical. I'll give Stain that. <laughs> Man, I'm glad we figured that oh, out. Phew. I, yes, now we know. Now we know. Now we know. I am, end up finding myself being a little forgiving of this lighting effect that the uh, the crew uses to kind of create the the illusion of everybody getting shot. It never quite feels like it's lining up with the position where the guys were that we just saw standing there. When we when it comes time to seeing it, it's like it it just looks like lights that were coming from you know back where Jeff Bridges just walked past. But again, it's one of those things I forgive. It's a small thing. Movie magic. <laughs> just flashlights. Yeah, Sloppy movie good. magic. This They're is fine. like this is like the B-level movie magic that you watch at a, like a kind of a local dive bar. Right. But you right. you've had enough you've had enough drinks you're like, "Yeah, yeah, it's okay. I I, I saw the card go up his sleeve, but it's all right." How, how much did we spend on the suit <laughs> animation? How much? Okay. All right. We're just going to get some strobe lights from Party Central and that's going to have to be good enough. All right. Let's wrap this up, please. <laughs> Now, I will say the line in the script as Stain is walking away is a little more, uh, it, it, it hurts a little more. It's a little uh, rougher. Uh, as he's walking away at, uh, and talks to his men, he says, send them to their virgins. Mm. I don't care for it. I'm frowning as hard as I can. It does. It's not translating <laughs> on the audio of the mic. I'm, mm, I do not care for that line at no. all. Yes. Mm, no. 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 Yeah, that's a it's a pretty bad line. I'm really glad that they chose to not go that route because yikes. Yeah. Because of course yeah. they're not they're not all Muslim. We learned this. <laughs> yeah, there's 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 you know people from all over the place here. <laughs> that's right. They're equal opportunity bad guy employers. Very insensitive to lump them all in with one religious identity, Obadiah. Come on. Come You're on. You're better man. than this. You're... <laughs> We had the diversity training back at Stark Industries, which you wanted, by the way, and you didn't show up for, I noticed. So now we've got to have it again. All for you. Because Deborah and accounting is going to be all up in arms over this. (laughs) Okay, so now, uh, do you guys have any other things about the outside before we jump into the car? No. Because I want to jump into the car. I've got something to say here. All right, let's drive. You've got, you actually have something in the car besides the now uh, bad guy lighting on his eyes. <laughs> no, we've got right now. Like everything, everything is changed for Obadiah now. Exactly. Yes. Right. Right. Um, no. So he he gets on the phone. We see him on the phone in the car. Set up sectors, sector 16 under the arc reactor. And I'm going to want this data mask to recruit our top engineers. I want a prototype right away. 
Okay, this mm-hmm. is telling me that there is a whole level of stain people employed in Stark Industries because they're setting up this whole thing to build, uh, you know, the the his new Mark One basically in in the basement under the arc reactor. This is the whole Sector Sixteen. He's he's crating it up and he's bringing it with him. It's going to be data masked. He's bringing in the top engineers. There's a whole level of what Stain is doing here at Stark Industries that tells me this is not a company full of great people and Obadiah. There's a lot of people that are going to need to be cleaned up in here. It takes a certain kind of person to go into arms manufacturing. I mean, I'm, I'm sure there are lots of very nice people who make guns and you know, please, please don't take offense. But, you know, you have there has to be a certain moral detachment or a certain mental separation you have to make from the work you do and what that work is going to be used for. And Tony pulls it off pretty effectively, right? He's just selling the missiles. He doesn't think about the human cost that those missiles uh, uh, will will have. It's uh, if if you do let it get to you, you end up building a house to uh, protect yourself from all the spirits of the people who have died from the weapons that your company's made. Right? Isn't that what happens to these people? <laughs> I'm sure that's right. The bunker, bunker the, mentality. The Winchester. It's the Winchester plan. Yeah. Right. Oh, I didn't get that <laughs> reference. No, I get that's, it. You know that lady, the the crazy lady in San yes. uh, Jose, I believe, who built that house and just kept building it because mm-hmm. one of the rumors or the rumors that people had was that's exactly what it was. That you know she oh she must be doing it to protect herself from all the spirits of the people who've died from her family's weaponry. Well, and that that was the was that the same house where you'd open up doors and it'd just be a door to the outside. Yeah, just like, like no yeah, stairs, it was all random, just random stairs, door, yeah. Yeah. stairs right. to nowhere. Yeah. Doors yeah. opening yes. into walls. Yeah. That's the also place. Tony Stark's house. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. Uh, so, no, but what I was wondering, though, about, about all of that is it makes me wonder. So, obviously, I guess Tony's going to have to do some serious cleanup with the company by the time this whole thing is done and he gets stain out. But it does make me wonder, and it's not something that has ever been brought up in the films, is are there moles left? Are there people who are kind of stain-sided, who have kind of stuck with the company, but are still kind of working for Stark Industries uh, down the road? You're saying there are people who have been stained by their association with Obadiah? <laughs> you didn't do that. <laughs> he did, and I liked it. <laughs> oh, dear. Well, he, he has to have a Pepper Potts equivalent, someone that he trusts to do the, the day-to-day running because he's busy That's gallivanting right. across the globe going hither and yon. So I wonder what evil Pepper Potts looks like. It would be Veruca Salt. Oh. Uh. <laughs> I see what you did there. Oh, I also, I also like it. I'm gonna, I'm gonna hang up this call right now. <laughs> oh, that's too bad. Bye, Pete. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Oh, I, you know, I was, uh, I was a little disappointed that uh, we have Sector 16 here, and there is no reference to Sector 16 anywhere in the comics that I could find. I was hoping that that was huh. some mysterious thing that would lead me down all sorts of crazy comic book rabbit holes of interesting stories and what happens in Sector 16, but it's only in the film, and that that kind of disappointed me a little bit. I'm sorry about that, because I know that that's one of those things these days that you're living for, is these new, brave new rabbit, rabbit holes. I really am. It's so funny. I'm so- 
Sorry. It's curious to me that Sector 16 is directly beneath the arc reactor. Wouldn't that be like yeah. Sector 1 or something? You know, because the arc <laughs> reactor is such a big honking piece of machinery that's been there forever. Well, maybe they start at the top with Sector 1 and work their way down. Either way, so 16's all the way at the bottom. <laughs> I can buy that. There. All, right. all right. I can Pivot. buy that. But still, the arc reactor is really obvious. If you have a secret project, why would you, you know, have your secret weapons project be directly beneath your main centerpiece. Yeah. I, mean, it's, I, I guess it's hiding in plain sight, but still, I don't know. I don't know how smart this it's is. Strange well, thing. now, wait a minute. Now, this is this is a good question uh, because it, it wouldn't, wouldn't it be under the arc reactor because they're working with arc reactor technology? Like, this is where mm. the lab is? Yeah, so until they can miniaturize it, they just yeah. run the suit off of the arc reactor. Well, okay. that's that was my that was my assumption, and that's mm. why the initial uh, prototype is there. Yeah, right. You've done it again. <laughs> right, that makes that makes sense. Okay, chalk up another one for Pete. <laughs> All right. We go from this scene, and uh, we get our uh, we get our transition. We get our our, our lovely little uh, wipe out of here. Oh, sorry. Actually, it's not a wipe here. We get we. This is an interesting. Just a hard we cut, just a hard cut yeah. out of Afghanistan over to uh, to Pepper coming out of a door that uh, I I'd seen in the background before, but it was never in a position where I realized it was a door. I always thought this was a window, and uh, but find out no, there is actually a door here. And as it turns out, I looked at the the blueprints in the the Art of Iron Man book, and it turns out that there's an elevator back in there. And uh, lo and be- I, I'm assuming it doesn't specify, huh. but I'm assuming it comes down from his bedroom because what is interesting is in the script, I'm just going to kind of speed through this. We go from uh, Obadiah finishing off the people in uh, at, at Raza's camp to, interestingly, uh, a scene with Phil Coulson where he's calling uh, Pepper Potts to try to schedule this appointment that they can't ever seem to to connect and uh mm. and he and he's trying to connect with tony and he says maybe i can meet with you instead and she's like why i don't know anything and uh he's like about what and he, she says about anything uh it, we cut to to her and we see that uh she's looking at a security monitor she sees Rody arriving she um she says i'm jammed let's find another time to chat uh agent colson she brings, um, or, and this is where they actually put the schedule on the books to meet at Stark Industries. They say goodbye. Rhodey comes in. The two of them chat, and um, and Pepper's like, "You can't see him right now." Uh, and they go into Tony's bedroom and find that Tony is in bed, tethered to all sorts of medical equipment, and um, he's just he's he's drifting in and out of unconsciousness. And Rhodey's like, what were you thinking? Tony says, weapons I built are being used to kill innocent people. Can't let that happen anymore. Rhodey, you can't go around and blow stuff up every time you see something you don't like on TV. Tony, yes, I can. Rhodey, you got lucky. Next time, they'll blow you to pieces. Tony, next time, maybe I won't play defense. Rhodey floored, gets to his feet, paces. Rhodey, does Pepper know about this? He nods, his eyes starting to flicker. Rhodey, you've put me in a tough spot here. What am I supposed to do? Tony. That's up to you. I've made my choice. I'm not going to sit on the sidelines anymore. I'm going to fight for what's right. Rhodey, don't you get it? It's not up to us to decide. Tony, that's where you're wrong. He drifts into unconsciousness. Then we have a scene that actually is cut in here from uh, Obadiah talking to his engineers. And then we come back to 
uh, the cave in Afghanistan, and we see Yinsen framed by the mountains in the background staring at us. Are you on the right path? I don't know. What does your heart tell you, Tony Stark? And we cut to Tony. He wakes up in his gilded bedroom alone. He catches his own sad reflection in a mirror, hooked up to IVs and machinery that pings and hisses. And then it cuts to Pepper walking in to the the shop and finding him. Um, well, actually, she enters his bedroom, finds it empty. And then that's what drives her to, I'm assuming, take the elevator to come down here and find him back at work. See, now I assumed it was because there was so much glass on the stairs. <laughs> because <laughs> he blew those out as to why she takes ago. the elevator instead of the stairs yeah, she this takes time. the elevator now <laughs> wow that is a lot of That's fat that so deserves to be cut it's a lot yeah it's a lot of interesting stuff i don't know if i needed to see tony's uh in bed healing i guess it makes sense as far as the time frame that we were talking about a few days ago as far as you know obadiah is zipping back and forth tony's zipping back right. and forth but yeah i mean we're an hour and a half into this film, and by this point, you really just kind of want to be speeding things along, you know? Right. We're on, we're on the very cusp of Act 3 here, and we need to keep the, the developing action going. We don't have time for a dream sequence. Plus, that, that doesn't seem to fit with Iron Man in particular, at least not at the beginning. That This kind of—now, wait a minute, but we do have him bothered by visions later— Hmm. I wonder if that's where this came from, where he has this vision of Undream of Yinsen, and then it hooks in with his later visions and worries and anxieties with the um, Chitauri invasion. Yeah, hmm. it's. I mean, it's an interesting element that they incorporate here, and it's certainly, I mean, I can see why they probably wanted to have Rhodey in here, because we haven't seen him for, you know, five, ten minutes. We want to kind of remind people that he's part of the story, too, because we're not going to see him for right. a little bit again. But, you know, I don't know. I, I think it works fine to not have any of that and just to kind of uh, keep us moving. Well, I yeah. think I, I think there's an open, uh, maybe there was an open question at, at one point, and it goes back to how well we're demonstrating this guy is a human, that when he's he's in the suit, he is still like we, we've. There was a point when, you know, where he was in the suit and he could be injured, right? He was hurt. And mm. they they've sort of stripped the movie of all of that. So there's a much cleaner sort of delineation between in the suit, protected from everything, impervious to everything. And when he's out of the suit, he's a man. Uh, And so that's one of the things that I think is, is cleaned up by not having a sequence where he's getting any sort of medical care that he's, we don't want to lean in too heavily on the fact that, you know, he's just a man. Well, and that's interesting because, uh, I mean, I I think they keep true to that, but I do like that, at least here, we do get, as uh, we cut in on some close-ups of him, he's got like kind of an ovular scar of some sort, like a scab on his neck. Like on his neck. There's something else on his cheek. There's kind of a gash on on his forehead. It feels like, uh, I think what there's... Oh, no, that, that's just a, a charming lock of hair, I think. I don't think so, unless it's like oh, stuck on his head. But I, I, I was kind of scrubbing for a while trying to figure it out, but I think it's... Or it's grease. I mean, it could be grease. Yeah. You know, you, yeah he's, he's working with all of his... He's getting up to his armpits and yeah. all the guts of the robot there. But regardless, it's like they're, they they keep emphasizing, you know, when he's in the suit, like you said, he's he's not going to get hurt except these little things, right? Yeah, right. Yeah. Little scrapes yeah. and scratches. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I, I find the, the setup of Tony's lab here uh, fascinating. He's out of the suit, but he's still surrounded by technology. 
he's still protecting himself and shielding himself. And I, I find it significant in the setup of the shot. Pepper does not come into the inner sanctum here. She's on the outside right, yeah. of Tony's technological world. And he gives her something from inside this barrier, but he's not letting her into this uh, this world yet. And she's not comfortable entering into it yet either, as is evident by the question she asks. What are you going to do with this? information. Well, and it's very interesting how the technology that's surrounding him has like grown so exponentially. Like we have seen him working yeah. in technology since early on in the film. It's been very much a part of his life, but this is the first time where it's just like everywhere. He, like it's like uh, like a man obsessed as as he's just kind of enveloped himself in this as this as you said his mm-hmm. shield. I mean, it really is. And mm-hmm. I think it it uh, it's almost becoming horrifying. And I, yeah, certainly uh, uh, just we don't quite see it here in this minute. But, you know, he, he does seem to be like he's uh, he's getting a very narrow focus right now. Well, it's one of those nice little metaphors for his mind, right? He's confused. He's he's scattered. He's making very big motions. And, the the uh, you know, his lab gets sort of messier and messier the more he's in this mode. Yeah. Yeah. And I love how the the actual suit itself is is hanging by chains now, right? I mean it's it is it's it's this like next entropic step um as he tries to get control of whatever it is he's trying to control that the suit which normally is hidden behind these beautiful plates and pulled apart by these arms robotic arms, right? I mean chains. There's nothing sort of more rudimentary um, you know, the, the antithesis of the robot than just these big metal chains. That makes me think of uh, an engine block that's pulled right. out of the car and hung in the garage so that the mechanics can get at it more easily. Right. Yeah. And it's, it is interesting though, because normally it is like it, when it's, when the machine is doing it, it's pulling it off in little pieces like this piece and that mm-hmm. piece and this piece and that piece. And now we have this half body just hanging there and it's, it's almost like this this uh, presence that's constantly looming over his shoulder as you watch him kind of having this conversation with Pepper. It's like this mm. uh, this interesting presence that he can't shake. Really interesting. I love it. Yeah. yeah. Have you guys ever called your uh, USB drive a lock chip? Is that a new thing that I... Is that what he says? I, I spent a lot of time trying to listen to what exactly he calls this flash drive a lock chip. No, never. Well, you know, so there are USB keys that are actually keys. And I only know this not because I've, you know, hacked, I don't know, NORAD, uh, but because uh, I an awfully have... specific example, <laughs> Pete. <laughs> I I have like to in- welcome the members of the NSA who are listening to our conversation. <laughs> well, there was a there was a time when you would buy large sets of creative assets, whether they're you know stock photos, or digital assets, or software, or in in the case I'm thinking of, um, uh, music stems, uh, music instruments, the, like samples, large symphony samples that would come on these big big drives. And in order to access them, you'd have to put in this, uh, like a USB key, like a lock key. Uh, And and as soon as that USB key is inserted into your computer, these assets are unlocked for you to use. 
So that didn't seem like a stretch to me. What I loved about it is that this this particular USB key very clearly to me looked like it's a, also a, a fingerprint reader. Um, so you put it in, and you're it's also you know reading your thumb to authenticate you. I thought that was that was kind of cool. And it comes in its own oh. fancy case too, which I right. Speaks to you want to protect technology. those things, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Right. Although he doesn't give her the case, he just gives her the no. Thing. He, he keeps the case. I'm gonna, this is too much for you to handle. <laughs> Typical man underestimating the woman's technical abilities. Oh, of course. <laughs> Let's see. I don't know if I have anything else for this minute. We're going to kind of continue their conversation tomorrow. What about you guys? Any last thoughts here? We've already done my Christ in the Cape segment, so I have nothing else to say about this minute. What about you, Pete? Wrap it up. Father David, thanks so much for joining us again this week. Gosh, I did it again. You are so... <laughs> oh, I really wanted to come back for tomorrow, but that's okay. I know what I'm not wanting. I'll just sit over here in the corner and be quiet while you record the last episode. Yes, yeah, yes, we'd like you to sit in the last episode on mute. <laughs> yeah, you can be here, but you don't get to talk. Insult, meet, injury. <laughs> that's, that's tough but fair. Okay. <laughs> Oh, no, it was a great conversation today, and uh, I do look forward to a conversation tomorrow. <laughs> oh, really? You mean it? Oh, shucks. Thanks, fellas. Yeah, I'd be happy to come back. Thanks so much for having me. remind everybody out there where they can find you out there. I have a, a collection of all of my various movies by minutes appearances on my website, fatherdavidmowry.com. That's father all spelled out, F-A-T-H-E-R. Uh, you can uh, listen to me babble on about the historical inaccuracies in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade when I talk about why it makes no sense that Franciscan friars would be talking about the Holy Grail. <laughs> so you can find links to that and, and uh, the other shows I've been on on my website, fatherdavidmowry.com. Fantastic. Oh, I'm, I'm tuning in for that. Are you kidding? Oh, it was it's a good, a it was a good conversation. Carpenter. The cup of a carpenter. <laughs> <laughs> Well, everybody, that is it for today's show. Thanks so much for tuning in. Make sure you subscribe to the show for free at marvelmovieminute.com. Join us over in our Discord chat room and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at The Next Reel. And if you like what we do and you want to support us and get some cool stuff, become a patron over at thenextreel.com slash Patreon. Until next time, true believers. True believers.